Hi, this is Steve Nellick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 71, Space is Hard and Mars is Harder. So Mars is just there, right? I mean, okay, Venus is actually closer, but we all know what a hellhole that place is. So Mars is a better option to land on, and maybe even to live on. But while it's easy writing stories about all that, actually doing it is another thing altogether. Dear Cheap Astronomy, is there any point in nuking Mars? In a word, no. The idea, famously championed by Elon Musk, is that we should drop thermonuclear bombs on Mars's poles, releasing large volumes of water vapour and carbon dioxide, which will bulk out Mars's very thin atmosphere, and since both CO2 and water vapour are greenhouse gases, they should also warm up the planet. Bits of this could actually work, at least in the short term. Nuclear bombs would melt the ice, and the gases that formed would then become atmosphere. But you'd need quite a few nuclear bombs to melt the entirety of each ice cap. The larger northern ice cap is about 1,100 kilometres in diameter, and the smaller southern one is about 400 kilometres in diameter. The permanent base of each cap is water ice, which may be up to 3 kilometres thick. And each winter, a layer of frozen carbon dioxide forms on top of those ice caps, which at midwinter may capture up to a third of Mars's atmosphere, which is mostly CO2. The idea of terraforming Mars is compelling. It's a planet with a similar spin to Earth's, 24 hours and 27 minutes, and it has quite a similar axial tilt, 25 degrees, versus Earth's 23.5 degrees. So, like Earth, Mars has seasons that arise from that axial tilt, and, like Earth, one hemisphere's winter is the other hemisphere's summer. So, winter in the northern hemisphere is freezing out CO2 from the atmosphere, while summer in the southern hemisphere is returning CO2 to the atmosphere. So, if we undertook the Musk-Nuke-Mars campaign, you might increase the atmosphere's CO2 content by a third, which is a big proportional change. But let's remember this is an atmosphere with about 1% of Earth's atmospheric density, so that additional CO2 is not really going to have that much greenhouse impact. After all, it's CO2 that is being routinely released and recaptured on a seasonal basis anyway. The bigger impact from nuking Mars will come from vaporising the main volume of Mars's ice caps, which is water. Water vapour is a very potent greenhouse gas, and the low atmospheric pressure of Mars should prevent it from settling onto the surface as a liquid. But Mars's greater distance from the Sun means the planet just doesn't receive that much solar flux, so there's really not all that much heat that can be trapped by a greenhouse effect at least when compared to Earth or Venus. And within a day of dropping the nukes, the poles will have cooled back down and will start freezing out water from the atmosphere again. You also have the issue of Mars having no magnetic field, 
So the solar wind will be irretrievably stripping away water vapour from the upper layers of the atmosphere. Elon Musk has suggested that once there's sufficient greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, that should start a positive feedback loop where volatiles get heated out of the regolith across the planet, which adds more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere and hence adds even more heat. But while this can happen on Venus, Mars just doesn't get enough sunlight and it's also got less gravity, so it could never generate an atmospheric pressure that's anything like Venus. So, nah, it just doesn't work. Mars is an old, stable planet that's at equilibrium with itself. Drop some bombs and you can shift that equilibrium for a while, but unless you keep on dropping bombs continuously, the planet will inevitably trend back to its earlier equilibrium state. The whole problem with climate change on Earth is that we keep on burning more coal and cutting down more forests. If we stopped all that tomorrow, the climate would slowly trend back to how it was before the Industrial Revolution. So, at the end of the day, Mars is a low-gravity planet with low solar flux and virtually no magnetic field. If you really want to terraform it, those are the issues that you have to deal with. And of course, all that water at the poles will probably be a useful resource for future spacefarers so it's best left intact and unnuked. This is the middle bit. Like we said, Mars is an easy place to write stories about, but really doing those things the stories are about is another thing altogether. But come on, we've landed on the moon and returned safely to Earth again, so surely we can do the same with Mars. And yes, it looks like we can probably land okay. But getting off Mars again looks a bit trickier. Dear Cheap Astronomy, how are we going to get home from Mars? Sorry, we can't seem to get off doing podcasts about Mars. And that is the topic of today's podcast. How can we get off Mars? Getting something onto the surface of Mars in one piece is a major technical challenge. Getting something off the surface in a controlled fashion is a whole new ball game, and not something we've achieved to date with robots, and doing it with astronauts will be several orders of magnitude more difficult. Calculating how you land on Mars is a bit like calculating Tsiolkovsky's rocket equation in reverse. There's almost no atmosphere on Mars, well, maybe enough that you can achieve a small slowdown with heat shield aero braking and with a parachute, but to land any sizable mass safely on the surface, you'll also need retro rockets. And the bigger the mass you want to land, the more retro rocket burning you'll need, and the more retro rocket burning you need, the more fuel you'll need, and that more fuel means more mass so you'll need even more fuel to decelerate the fuel that you'll need to decelerate with, and so on and so forth. So the idea that you can not only land people on Mars with their life support systems and all that, but also land them on Mars carrying enough additional fuel to allow them to take off again, well, forget it. It worked on the moon because we had less gravity to contend with. 
And maybe we can do it on Mars with a pint-sized launcher that's capable of returning a few core samples, perhaps collected by the Mars 2020 rover, but even that's just an idea at the moment. So if you really needed yet another reason why we aren't going to land people on Mars and return them safely to the Earth anytime soon, well, there you go. Although, to be fair to everyone who's thought this through, there is a way, but it involves a whole bunch of untested technologies, which is a polite way of saying it involves science fiction. Although it is fairly plausible science fiction, involving plausibly feasible technical solutions, well, at least they're plausibly feasible technical solutions on paper. There is a strong consensus amongst everyone who's thought all this through that a MAV, a Mars Ascent Vehicle, will have to create its own ascent fuel from resources available on Mars. Making ascent fuel on Mars probably means making methane for the fuel as well as liquid oxygen to burn the fuel. Although CO2 can get you the carbon and the oxygen, you're also going to need water to get the hydrogen that's in methane. Essentially, you put CO2 and H2O together to create methane and molecular oxygen, a reaction that requires energy input, which you can get from solar panels. It's estimated that on Mars, you'll need around 7 kilograms of fuel for every kilogram of launch payload. And let's remember Mars's atmosphere is very thin, so it will take a long time to extract all the CO2 you need and it's unlikely you could extract enough water by digging or drilling within the immediate surroundings of the MAV. Of course, you could land a MAV near the poles, and then access huge amounts of water, but you'd lose the momentum advantage of launching near the equator, and you'd be landing on a surface that melts and refreezes over the course of a Martian year, so there's all sorts of problems with that idea. So... To fuel the MAV, you would almost certainly have to bring water to the MAV. So you'd need digging, drilling and extraction robots, and some kind of long-distance transport system, all of which is technically feasible, but now you're talking major infrastructure that has to be flown in and constructed ahead of the MAV, which itself has to be flown in well ahead of the astronauts. And of course, nothing can go wrong with any of this, Because once the astronauts land, they'll be stuck unless the MAV, that they've never actually seen before, let alone test flown before, can really launch. So the chances of seeing boot prints in red regolith in the 2030s look pretty slim. The first ever MAV will almost certainly be a robot that brings back rock samples to Earth. And for that much, the 2030s does sound plausible. This is the end bit. So, there you go. There's no shortage of ideas about getting to and staying on Mars. But while having ideas is good, making them happen is another thing altogether. Indeed, a lot of the ideas that get airplay at the moment are extremely hypothetical, would require years of testing and retooling before you could get anything like a working solution, and by going through this process, you may come to realise that the whole idea was flawed from the start. So, while optimism is a great thing, 
Really getting to Mars probably requires a multi-mission program and quite possibly some new propulsion technologies we are yet to conceive of or build. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to drop a nuke on us, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll bring it all back to equilibrium for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.